0: The following podcast is from Tabernacle Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia. Thanks for listening. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to find your place in Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, and this morning we're going to look at verses 33 through 41. And I'm speaking this morning on the subject what some mothers can tell us about Jesus. What some mothers can tell us about Jesus. In our text before us, the gospel writer describes Jesus' final moments, the final moments of his life on earth. In doing so, he makes mention of certain women, some of whom were mothers, who were onlookers or witnesses at Jesus' death. And from our text and from their experience, we gain important biblical insight concerning What Jesus did for us on the cross. If you were to look in Mark 15, verse 33, you would read, When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you were to read on in the account, verse number 40, it says there were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and of Salome in Galilee. These women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him in Jerusalem. In John's gospel, we learn that Jesus' mother was also among this group of women. John says in John nineteen twenty-five, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Uh, so we see these onlookers, these women. Interestingly, all the men had fled at this point. Peter had even flatly denied Jesus three times, but we see women being faithful to Jesus even in his death. Matthew will tell us in Matthew 28, one, that these same women went to honor our Lord and took spices uh, to the tomb, hoping uh, to help preserve his body after his death. Today, on Mother's Day, we look at this gospel account of Jesus' death and we look at what these women looked at over 2,000 years ago And we see that they can tell us some important stuff, important truth about Jesus. Now indeed, most of our mothers, if they were here today, could uh, share uh, about each of us. Mothers can tell a lot about their children. And Jesus' mother was here observing that day. I think about my mother. If you were to talk to her about me, she could tell you a lot of different things. She could tell you that when I was growing up, my favorite meal that she cooked was her famous cabbage rolls. Big meatballs wrapped in cabbage, placed in a pot with stewed tomatoes and sauerkraut. That was my favorite meal as a kid. I love that meal. Now that's not typical for kids. I can remember uh, one of the birthday parties I had growing up didn't have as many birthday parties, uh, you know, as you have now for kids, but I can remember having one and my mom said, what would you like me to cook, Patrick? Hey, no brainer, cabbage rolls. A bunch of third graders come over and the house smells like stewed tomatoes and sauerkraut. They were expecting pizza and nachos, right? My mom could tell you that that was my favorite meal. She could tell you, growing up, that my favorite stuffed animal was a dog named Yo-Yo. I still have Yo-Yo to this day. Laura won't let me keep him in the main part of the house. He lives up in the attic. But I couldn't get rid of Yo-Yo, all right? My mom could tell you my favorite sport was baseball. Mothers can tell a lot about their children, and Jesus' mother was here observing His death. What a horrible, horrific thing. But that day, as she observed the death of her son, she saw several signs and wonders that pointed to great heaven sent truth about Jesus. And we're reminded from our text this morning that Jesus has done some great things for us. These mothers who were present, Jesus' mother as well as the mother of James and one of the other other disciples and his brother. There was also the mother of the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, James and John. Three mothers were here present and they could all, if they were to give witness today, share some important truth about Jesus. This text stands as a reminder that Believers of all generations need to stay aware of what Christ has done for them. If we don't hear the witness of these mothers, if we don't grasp the truth of Calvary, we can easily become discouraged in our spiritual journey by forgetting God's great love for us. If we don't hear the testimony of this mark and if we forget what these mothers saw, we could easily become despondent spiritually, neglecting the great privilege we have of a relationship with creator God. If we don't remember this account, we can become dull in our Christian service and forsake our responsibility to minister the gospel to everyone. These mothers can tell us some things about Jesus, And we have the question from our text this morning, what can they tell us? What has Jesus done for us? Well, I believe by looking at this text, we see three great truths concerning Jesus' work on our behalf. Number one, we're reminded from Mark's gospel that Jesus experienced separation from God on our behalf. Jesus was cut off from God so that we don't have to be cut off from God. Jesus embraced the suffering and the separation your imperfection and your sin deserves. He was alienated from God so that you don't have to be alienated from God. You can have a relationship with God on earth and a relationship with God forever and eternity because Jesus, was cut off from God on your behalf. Mark fifteen thirty three teaches this truth. When it was noon, it says, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. We see here this mention of darkness. The time given noon, Jesus, according to Mark 15, 25, had been on the cross for three hours. And then all of the sudden, The sun was blacked out, and the skies became pitch dark, Mark says, over the whole land. The word land here uh, probably refers to the region of Judea. And now, I'd like to say there's no reason to view this darkness as being symbolic, or figurative, or metaphorical. believe the plain meaning of the text here, that the sky literally physically really became black, dark. Uh, We know there's no need to see this as being some figurative form of language here because throughout Mark's gospel, the gospel writer has depicted Jesus as performing miracles. We've even seen Jesus in Mark's gospel. If you were to read it, walk on the water or tell troubled waters to be still. He's already exhibited that he is creator God who has control over all nature. So get the meaning of the Bible here. This is not just figurative language. Mark is reminding us Jesus is God and he has power over all creation. He is the one, Colossians one, who was with God at the beginning of the time making the universe. And here the Lord uses supernatural power to alter the course of natural events. Now maybe he did use a Sirocco wind or a heavy rainstorm to blacken the sky. We don't know. Whatever the case, we know this miraculously out of the ordinary, supernaturally darkness hung over Judea for three hours. Now know this about All of the Lord's miracles in the Bible, they always have a built-in object lesson. That's why the author of Hebrews calls them signs and wonders. They're wonders in that, wow, how did he do that? That's amazing. But they're signs in that the Lord intends to teach something through them. Why did he have darkness hang over the sky? I believe there's a couple reasons for it. Number one, there's an allusion to the events of Passover. Uh, The the Jews present would have known that this was the time of Passover. That's why they were in the capital city. If you remember Israel's deliverance from Egypt, when the original Passover took place, you would remember that there was a lot of different plagues uh, that came with the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. you remember the Lord sending frogs and lice, turning water into blood? Do you remember the last plague, death of the firstborn? Do you remember the plague before the death of the firstborn? Darkness enveloped the entire land of Egypt. So we, we see here, we believe a reference. The Lord's firstborn is about to die for the sins of humanity. He's about to suffer, as, die as the Passover lamb, but before he does, the Lord sends darkness. And it's all a sign wrapped into this wonder to show that deliverance is coming through God's son, the Passover lamb. And just as the Israelites were delivered from the bondage of Egypt, the bondage of slavery, every man, woman, boy, and girl who trust in Jesus Christ as a son of God who died for sins will be delivered from the bondage of sin. So here this darkness alludes to that pivotal act in Jewish history. Our Lord was the fulfillment of the foreshadowing of the Lamb who was slain, Exodus 12 4, at the original Passover feast. But this darkness is also symbolic of judgment. First century Jews and even Old Testament Jews, you can see in the Bible, regarded black skies as a sign of divine displeasure. One has said that the darkness here was intended to teach the exceeding sinfulness of our sin in the eyes of God. Black sky was a sign of the judgment that all sin deserves. It created an ominous tone over the crucifixion scene and all who witnessed this event should have felt the somber weight of sin and suffering. The sky of pitch black was emblematic of the fact that 2 Corinthians 5, 21 is true. God made the one who did not know sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus makes us aware of this reality with this cry Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. For Jews, It was obvious that Jesus was quoting Psalm 22, 1, and ascribing those words from that psalm to himself, he here, some of his dying words, makes a claim to be the Messiah. He applies a messianic psalm to himself. Jesus believed he was God, and Jesus believed he was the one sent to redeem and deliver all of humanity. Now, throughout church history, there's been a lot of debate over what Jesus meant when he said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me or forsaken me? You know, it seems impossible to get our minds around this. I mean, it's hard enough to grasp the reality of the Trinity, God three and one. But what what does it mean that one within the Trinity could abandon another within the Trinity? Well, this word "abandon" means to forsake, as many translations have it. It means to provide no help or to leave in the lurch. And so one may ask, how can God abandon himself? It's often famously been told of the way in which Martin Luther desired to understand this verse. And he locked himself away and studied for a long amount of time, and folks knew he was going to study this text. When he emerged from a study, people asked, well, Dr. Luther, what do you have for us? What does it mean? And Luther replied, as it's often told, God, forsaking God? Who can understand that? Indeed, the exact degree to which the Lord forsook Jesus it's perhaps beyond our understanding we can't really grasp in our finite minds how this happened A.T. Robertson has said we may not be able to enter into the fullness of this desolation felt by Jesus at this moment as the father regarded him as sin I chalk it up to a Deuteronomy 29, 29 type of thing the secret things belong to the Lord but despite the unknowability of what happens here, we can conclude this from the text. God turned his back on Jesus to some degree and in some fashion. We can know this. While Jesus was on the cross, he sensed a degree of abandonment from the Almighty. He experienced separation from God on our behalf. The Bible is clear here. Jesus became a substitute for us. He was a scapegoat on our behalf. Jesus embraced the role of a go-between between between us and the heavenly father and he experienced what I should experience, what you should experience, what all of humankind should experience. He experienced separation from God because of sin. He was, as Mark said earlier in his gospel here, giving his life, Mark 10, 45, as a ransom for many. Here we see Jesus, God's son, becoming a curse for our sin on our behalf. As Paul says it in Galatians three thirteen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus' cry here is a stark reminder that he became sin for us. His feet didn't just touch down on earth to teach us some things, to be an outstanding moral example, to kind of show a way to heaven or to God. No. He came to earth to make a way to God, to take upon himself our sins, to experience separation from God, and to die on our behalf, so that we can be cleaned of our sins, so that we can receive the righteousness for the righteousness of God. Jesus paid the price. Our sins deserve separation from God. Sir, man, boy, girl, you don't have to experience eternity separated from God in hell because Jesus has taken that separation upon himself for you. You don't have to live a life now here on earth isolated from God, wonder if he exists, doing life on your own, Jesus, has embraced separation from God on your behalf. He has served as your substitute. His mothers who witnessed the crucifixion scene can tell us some important stuff about Jesus. They can first tell us that Jesus experienced separation from God on our behalf. We've got to stay aware of this reality. If you don't keep this truth in your mind, you can easily become discouraged in your spiritual journey. You can give up when hard things hit your family, thinking maybe God doesn't care about me. If you don't keep this truth in your mind and in your heart, you can easily be driven crazy by your own insecurity. See, when you realize that Jesus has paid it all on your behalf, and experience separation from God on your behalf. You can stand strong, you can stand secure. No matter what comes your way in life, no matter what may happen physically, loss of job, a tragedy, financial downturn, about with sickness or a pandemic, all of those things in light of Calvary are pale in comparison to the far surpassing weight of glory and the knowledge that our sin has been atoned for, and that now we have a relationship with God. These mothers can teach us some important things about Jesus. Number one, they remind us that Jesus embraced separation from God on our behalf, but number two, they remind us that Jesus has given us access to God. Jesus has given us access to God. Look at how verse 37 continues. It says then that Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Now notice the language here. It doesn't say he let out a cry. It says he let out a loud cry. Mark doubles down in the original language. He places emphasis. This wasn't just a cry. This was a loud cry. Here is Jesus, a victim of crucifixion, who by this time should be having a hard time breathing. Most victims of crucifixion died from asphyxiation. Yet Jesus is able, supernaturally, to let out a loud cry. Now what's involved in that cry? Mark doesn't tell us. Neither is Matthew. He gives a similar account in Matthew 27 50. Luke tells us that Jesus towards the end, Luke 23, 46, cried out, Father, into your hands, I trust my spirit. John tells us in John 19 30 that Jesus cried out to Telestai, it is finished. Mark here probably has in mind those last two statements. Perhaps he's really focusing on that last one of it is finished because then he says he breathed his last. Now, the the language here refers to the act of dying. This was the way in the Koine Greek to say he died. He breathed his last, he expired. And here we see the Bible very intentionally tell us that Jesus literally, actually, physically died. There is no room in the gospel accounts for the old theory that he kind of swooned on the cra- cross, passed out, was revived later. It's amazing. We know that Jesus is indeed a real historical figure person who made a profound impact on human history because you have all of these theories where people tried to discount what he did by denying his actual death. These sort popularized through the book, The Jesus Papers and another that came out before that. A lot of the material from those books were used for uh, Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code. There's all these theories that Jesus didn't really die. He kind of passed out. Later, his disciples revived him. He married Mary Magdalene. They moved to France, had a big family. There's actually people in the history of France who would claim they were descendants of Jesus. The Bible here is clear, intentional, and strategic to say he breathed his last. He died. And this is important historically, but it's also important theologically and scripturally. You see, in dying, Jesus finished his substitutionary work on our behalf. He paid the price your sin deserves. He died for your sins. He breathed his last. This was shortly after 3 p.m. Been on the cross for six hours. He died on the 14th of Nisan, the... First day of the Jewish month. And you would believe that would be our April 8th. And with his death, we see another miraculous occurrence. Earlier, we saw this, mirac- this miracle of the sky becoming black. Now, verse 38 says Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So another miraculous event this big large thick well crafted curtain in the temple is torn in two from top all the way to the bottom. Now I couldn't even do that with Laura's nice sheer thin curtains in the house. But here we see this well crafted Exodus 26:37 curtain in two. Now there's debate over which curtain it is. Is it the one that, kept, that separated the courtyard, where the Gentiles could gather from the holy place where Jews could gather, or was it the one between the holy place where Jews could gather and the most holy place where the priests could gather? Jo- Josephus mentions both of these curtains in his historical accounts, the Jewish historian does. And he actually gives an elaborate description of the one on the outside of the temple complex and we believe that perhaps it's that one because this event had important symbolic meaning that would tie, that would relate to that curtain. The gospels here don't really specify but no matter which curtain it was, the the meaning of the miracle is the same. The Lord in tearing the the tearing this curtain in two provided a picture of how access of God to God has been made available to all people you see that temple complex stood for and represented the presence of God to people in the first century Uh, there was a curtain that kept the Jews from the holy of holies there was a curtain that kept The Gentiles from entering that place where Jews could gather and the Lord here tears the curtain and symbolically shows that access to God has been made available to all. He shows he's moving away from working primarily with the Jews and he's moving into a new thing where every tribe and every tongue every language every ethnicity has access to God every man woman boy and girl every slave and every free man has access to God Jesus came to earth for this reason to give us all a relationship with God to make the presence of God more accessible Jesus himself declared, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Hebrews 10, 19 gives us some important teaching on this topic. Uh, speaking of the very curtain in the temple, the veil, it says in Hebrews ten nineteen we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. You see what he's saying? We we now, through Jesus, have access to the very presence of God. He was inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. Now the the passage I'm about to continue reading is one that's often used by preachers to remind everybody they ought to go to church. But notice the context. It's in the midst of talking about how the curtain was torn in two. So the author of Hebrews then says, because of what Jesus has done by making access to God available, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Get what Mark's trying to teach us. Hear what the book of Hebrews teaches us. As a result of what Jesus has done, we should be passionately committed to worshiping him and serving him. We've got to always stay aware of what Jesus has done for us and realize that to be a Christian is to have access to God. If we don't stay aware of this, we could easily get to the place of some of the original readers of Hebrews a place where we neglect this time of worship, a place where we neglect private prayer, a place where we neglect reading God's Word, a place where we take it for granted that we can actually talk to our Creator. If He has made access to God available to us, shouldn't we regularly seek Him? Shouldn't we make private, personal devotions and worship a priority? Shouldn't the gathering of ourselves together for worship trump all other things in society on the Lord's Day? Get what Jesus has done, that miraculous event. He tore the curtain in two to beckon us to worship him and to enjoy his presence. We see a third truth that these mothers witnessed at Calvary. They saw that Jesus died as a substitute on our behalf. They saw that access to God was open, but they were living witnesses to this third truth, Jesus is willing to receive anyone. Mark tells us there were also women watching from a distance, verse 40. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. Three different women are here mentioned. We mentioned earlier that Mary, the mother of Jesus, could be included in this group. The first Mary, Mary Magdalene, was the one who'd been healed of demon possession, Luke 8:2). The second one's not the mother of Jesus, as some would assume, but one of her sons, James, was one of the original 12 disciples. From John's account, it seems she was married to a man named Clopas, John nineteen twenty-five, and that she was the sister of Jesus' mother. And then the second Mary was the mother of the vaunted sons of thunder, James and John. She was the one that came and requested of Jesus, let my son sit at your right and left when your kingdom comes. Other gospel writers are real intentional to make mention of these women who were at Calvary supporting Jesus during his dark, darkest hour Matthew 27, 55 through 56, and Matthew 28, 1, Luke 23, 49, and 55, John 19, 25 through 27, and 20, verse 1. Now, at face value, this may seem kind of cute, nostalgic. Isn't that sweet, The poor, pitiful women there watching Jesus die? They were so supportive. That was their rightful lot. Hey, let's remember what the rest of Jesus' disciples had done. One of them had gotten away, had run away so fast from the Roman authorities when they tried to grab him, they stripped off his robe and he ran away in his undergarment. Peter then cursed to deny that he knew Jesus. All of them, all of the men had fled. So let, let this, let, let's get this, in the midst of all of the men turning tail, here we see the women remaining faithful. Maybe that's because they weren't under the same threats of the men. We'll give the men some of the benefit of the doubt, but it remains, they're here they're faithful, even though they had close association with him and could have been accused of some things. So that's remarkable, but it's also remarkable because close examination tells us that in the first century, women were often a second-rate citizen. So for them to stay and to be witnesses of this great event is historically and biblically remarkable you see women weren't regarded as trustworthy in the first century. weren't even used as witnesses in a court of law and for many they were culturally the an embodiment of weakness and so mark's record of these women being here speaks to their faithfulness to the lord but it also speaks of the lord's faithfulness to all people through the work of Christ on the cross, the Lord has made acceptance with God available, not to just an elite group, not just to the upper crust of society, not just to the one who seemed to be deemed wise or leaders by society's standards. The Lord here gives evidence through the inclusion of these women in this gospel account to a first century audience that would have not really held women in high regard, the Bible gives evidence that the gospel is something that is available to all. Jesus' work on the cross made the summons of salvation available to every man, every woman, every boy. Every girl, every socioeconomic status, every culture, every language, every nation can be seen as a candidate of grace. As Paul said in Galatians, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. we have got to stay aware of what Jesus has done for us. We've got some mothers here that can tell us some important things about Jesus. He's done a great work on our behalf. And if they could share with us today, they would remind us that the work of Jesus is available to all. And if we don't stay aware of this reality, we can become spiritually proud, spiritually dim-witted and dull. We can become a church that's just focused if we're not careful on maintaining the status quo. We can become a church just focused on our needs and forgetting that we have been given a great commission to offer the the summons of salvation to all. May Tabernacle always be a church that invites everyone in Cartersville to worship with us. Might we be people who show love and compassionate regard to all people, regardless of culture, background, socioeconomic status, ethnicity, or educational background. Might we learn to look beyond in our ministry, class levels, skin colors, attainments, and achievements. May we learn to see the world with the eyes of Jesus with love and compassion. In a world in which there's so much tension when it comes to subject of race, religion, and politics, may we just simply shine as lights of love. People who know Jesus. People who've been transformed by his grace. And people who give the open arms of Jesus to a world in need of acceptance and forgiveness. For more information, visit us online at tabernaclebaptist.org. Thanks for listening.